Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. My novel, Insatiable, one of Waterstone's best books of 2021, is now available to pre-order in paperback. Coming in February, you can get an exclusive special edition from Waterstone's with extra chapters and sprayed edges. Insatiable is also one of Apple's 12 best audio books of 2021. Thank you so much to the brilliant Charlie Clive who narrated it so beautifully. Check it out on Apple and wherever else you get audiobooks from and hear Charlie bringing Violet to life. Waterstones also have exclusive signed copies of my new novel, Careering, which is coming in March, and it's available for your book listeners to pre-order. Now, on to today's guest, Miranda Cowley-Heller. We're here to celebrate Miranda's stunning debut, The Paper Palace, a story of first love and family secrets. It's been one of the year's smash hits. If you loved it, you're in brilliant company, so do Meg Wolitzer and William Boyd. We talked about the importance of endings, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and the filthy Victorian gentleman stories. I don't want to give anything away, but um, the Paper Palace has a sort of fabulously ambiguous ending, and you really are not sure how it's going to go, or even as a reader how you want it to go, which I loved. And I was wondering about other books that you've read where you had that same a feeling at the end where maybe things weren't resolved as you expected or resolved at all. Um, it's so interesting because in my mind, um, there was the ending wasn't ambiguous at all. I thought it was overly clear, and so it's been so fascinating at my end that all these people are saying, "I want to discuss the end. I don't know what she did." And you know, uh, what I re- I realized going back was that when I went back and read the line that was so obvious to me, it could be scanned in two directions, and I think you bring to it what you want. But I say that because I have a hatred of books that have completely, like, that don't give you the end. Oh. I mean, not, okay, hatred is probably too strong a word. <laughs> no, we like extreme but emotions I, was, I, I feel like it was like a 80s and 90s trope. Like, it's too um, conservative to actually tell you the end of the story, mm-hmm. right? You know, I, I, I love a film or a book that tells you the whole story, right? That having been said, for example, at the end of Normal People, which you think, maybe in the future, and yes, and no, and you're not quite sure what's going to happen to these two people. I think that's one that I was so upset and sad at the end of it um, that, uh, 
you know, I think that's one that I sort of liked because the ambiguity gave me a little bit of like a chink of hope. Because that book is so character-led and I think everyone feels so extremely and intensely about Marianne and Connor and maybe their utter, like, you know, full 5D humanness. It's like, you know, with your friends, you would never expect your friends to say, well, this is exactly how my life's going to pan out. Bye! And so perhaps it feels more tactile in that way. Have you read, um, I love Laurie Colwyn a lot, and I talk about her far too much on this podcast, but I'm a big fan girl. Um, Family Happiness, which kind of disappointed me. And it's, I mean, I loved it. I really loved the experience of reading it. And I love those people. And it's actually thematically not a million miles away from the Paper Palace in that it is about the intensity of, you know, love and infidelity and people you really care for and root for not necessarily doing the right thing by their spouses in a, I don't know, legal, moral, biblical sense, but you absolutely get it. And that just kind of tails off in a very lifelike way and I think Colwyn is a very lifelike writer and she shies away from the new but maybe you know she was writing in the 80s and 90s delivering all those tropes when when it felt fresh and new it did I mean at the beginning it did it felt uh, I think it felt brave in a way mm. at the beginning and then I just think but when I want to read a comfort book I want, to, I want it yeah. to be Pride and Prejudice I want everything I want the kiss I want the yes mm. I want you know, so let's about talk it. about Pride and Prejudice when did you read it first when did you meet it oh my gosh um uh when I was 11 I think I read it I think first. that's the perfect age um and then I've reread it so many times I would lose count it's one of my com- I read it when I was in, in the hospital in labor, I took it on my honeymoon. I mean, it's my it's my thing when I'm feeling like I need. Well, and this is precisely speaks to what we're discussing about endings, mm. the a sense of like happiness, completion, and safety in a way. Um, I mean, that's just all apart from the writing itself, obviously, and all of her books, but that one in particular. Does it feel the way it felt the first time every time, or has your relationship with the Bennets changed? It feels the same. And there's so many books that I don't have that experience with. That I read that I read when I was young and my teens or whatever and that and I had such passion for. And then I decided, oh I'll go back, you know, decades later. And it just didn't do it for me at all. It was a different book and I think you know, there's a bunch of books like that that I had that experience with, including P.S. The Great Gatsby, which I got so irritated by the end. I was like, no, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. you know, I mean, and I've read it many, many, many times in my teens. And, you know, um, but I think that, or my theory anyway, is that when we're younger, our imaginations are so vivid that we fill in all the blanks. Mm. So if the prose or the story is spare, we imagine and remember a, a much richer, almost sort of filmic world in our head. And, um, and then as an adult, you, go, you know, I go back and I read certain books and I think it's so interesting. And I like the unsaid in, in, mm. <clears throat> in writing, but it's so interesting sometimes how much sparer something is or depressing in that case. And I think Gatsby especially sometimes, you know, I do, I've not read it in a long time. I love it, but it kind of almost feels like YA, or a little bit like 
Pride and Prejudice, but in an entirely different way, when you are so full of passion and energy and imagining and whatever you choose, as long as you have chosen it, you're going to have such an intense relationship with it. And you just love the romance of it. And all you want as a, I definitely remember as a, a young girl who was convinced like no one would love her or want her ever, the idea of just like Gatsby just look the lengths he's gone to for Daisy like yes please sign me up um I tried to read Tender as the Night every year I've not read it this year I don't know if it felt too weird to go back amidst all the other weirdness um my first memory of that was that it is so passionate and intense and subtle and I remember it feeling really sort of glamorous and luscious and then going back and being like this is a horrible book Dick's the most mediocre character of all time. What was I thinking? <laughs> yeah, well, that's sort of... I think when, you know, reading Gatsby, as you say, as a teenager, that it was the, it was so romantic. And then, of course, our point of view changes as well. And then I, you know, and it's just a sort of nasty social commentary with a really depressing end. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, and, and yet that last paragraph is profound you know obviously and um and I had that experience with one of my favorite favorite books of my whole life was Mary Reynolds The King Must Die which I also read when I was 11 which seems very strange to me but um and it was because it was assigned reading in my class in fifth grade and I don't know if you've read I don't know the book tell me about it um well Mary Reynolds wrote The King Must Die and The Bull from the Sea and they're both um sort of um, uh, like Circe, that that world and uh, the ancient world. It's the, the story of Theseus and going to Crete and the bull dancers and Nossus and um, and this young man in his journey. And it's an incredible story. It's very adult, though. I so I don't know why I <laughs> had been assigned. <laughs> I mean, really, it's the kind of book that. Anyway, but uh, for me, it was one of the most profoundly rich stories and I remember these snakes and these sex and these things like you know and landscape of Greece and Crete and it actually changed my life because it, I decided after reading it that I wanted to be an archaeologist and an underwater archaeologist because half of Crete had gone under the water and I thought well we can discover all of these treasures and I mean when I went to university I was I went in as an archaeology major um, and I soon decided, you know, realized I didn't want to be archaeologist. But anyway, so that's how was much that. It's like a slow dawning, or was there a day where you thought, "Oh, this is not what I thought it was." Um, the archaeology, or the yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, the archaeology is one. Just to finish, that I reread *The King Must Die*, mm-hmm. and it was the it was so blank. I mean, it was so fill in the blank. And I recently, and I couldn't. I was, I was like, "Where is the story though that I read?" Couldn't find it. Uh, archaeology, um, there were a few things. You know, I had, my my dream was to be, you know, as I say, an underwater archaeologist in Greece, off of Crete. Um, and a couple of things happened. One was that I saw Jaws, and I became absolutely terrified of swimming in deep water and terrified of sharks when I was, so it must have been in my mid-teens. And then, and then I went, you know, I still persisted in my dream and all it was was taking little brushes and little bits of pottery and going 
you know, <laughs> in a darkened room. And I think that was when I, <laughs> when I decided uh, that that um, wasn't what I was going to do. And I switched to literature. What did you read when you were studying? Is there anything that you fell in love with? Luckily, nothing there put um, you off. <laughs> no, I did. Um, I did a, uh, did a degree in a department called History and Lit, and I ended up doing American. I started out thinking I was going to do British and American. And you sort of had to go in with a bit of a, of a reading list, um, um, sort of leading to your thesis, which is more, I think, sort of the British <clears throat> way of, of doing university than actually the, the American. And I wrote my thesis on three novels, which included To Kill a Mockingbird, which is another one of my childhood books that I think really informed for me. Young Dill was very like informative for me, um, for young Jonas. So I read a lot of American literature from the sort of 20s and 30s and that whole group of expats. So I was reading, um, you know, the Hemingways and the Faulkners and all that stuff. Robert Penn Warren. I mean, there, there was a lot of sort of literature that was quite heavy. You know, Sister Carrie, Theodore Dreiser, you know, not so fun. But for me anyway, you know, um... And there must be so many books in that period, because I'm sure, I mean, I'm really fascinated by the idea, you know, because there's lots of American literature that I love, and I studied it a little, but I think the gaps in my knowledge must be enormous. And I'm sure that, you know, American scholars, and all the sort of the American syllabus, there are so many brilliant books that here we just, you know, have forgotten or haven't got to because of that gap, you know, the shared language, and yet there's still, you know, a little bit of inconsistency yeah, absolutely, and I think that sort of the Southern Gothic mm. writers of that of that time, um, um, and then of course a lot of these writers are are rapidly going out of style at the moment. Um, but you know Faulkner, who's yeah. amazing, I think, and um, Eudora Welty mm. and Carson McCullers, and you know all of these amazing female writers, yeah. strong, strong women writers from... I came so late to Carson McCullers and I couldn't quite believe that I didn't have those books earlier. Wasn't that, what? How old were you when you read it? Oh, God, I was like in my early 30s. Oh, you're kidding. <gasps> I think I read that around the same time as I read Pride and Prejudice. Because <laughs> it's so... I think the that worldview... And it's not like To Kill a Mockingbird, which I adore, which is very much about powerful people using that power for good holding your arm's length from the people without power and without privilege and Carson McCullers is just so devastatingly heartbreakingly vulnerable and you see how everyone has nothing and she really brings you to it yeah definitely and I well and just the, that a character a young girl you know that you can relate to in that way but it's a, a, such a serious and an amazing book um, and to that point I mean I wrote my thesis on uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Huck Finn, and To Kill a Mockingbird, examining um, the children's points of view in, in all these books that dealt with race um, in when they weren't sort of allowed, when adults weren't allowed to, to up until sort of To Kill a Mockingbird, voice, uh, you know, white adults weren't supposed to be voicing, you know, the right opinion, the correct opinion, and but the children did. And so I wrote it about the children and, and you know, how... You know all the obvious things, but one would say, I think, um, say, well, it doesn't matter what color, race, religion. You know, it was absolutely just inclusive and obviously obvious to them. There's no 
minutes. And I think that we still need to discuss that in contemporary literature. Um, I'm at the moment and guiding me through my sleepless nights, I'm rereading American Wife and that sort of the bits of the mid-century that are captured and again it's a conversation about privilege and who has it and who doesn't and that we that period of recent history where there was still so much division there is still so much division now but yeah there's still way too much division now <laughs> but but in the times before one was even allowed to sort of acknowledge mm. that I, I suppose I mean one yeah. was but in America obviously race was was and always has been that you yeah. couldn't be openly critical of the racism even, yeah. that there had yeah. to be sort of ways and means of skirting around it. So I get the impression that you have always been a reader and someone who grew up with books and reaching for books. Were there any books that you had to kind of, you know, sneak? Was there anything that was like passed around school? Or um, Well, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not passed around school. Um, there was a book, a, a sort of basically Victorian pornography that friends found when they were little on their parents' bookshelf. It was this um, memoirs of a Victorian gentleman called My Secret Life. Um, I don't know if you know the book, but I don't. It's um, it was a band. I mean, it was one of those things you'd go into the library and it was under the glass case, like you're not allowed to take it and read it because it's you know pretty seriously horrifying <laughs> but it was you know it's a true story I mean it's this they found this manuscript and we know it's some famous famous person from the period but they don't tell you who the, the name is not ever oh, and it's authentic it's not someone who wanted to write porn in the 50s he sort of no. pretended it no 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 this is his he literally his journals about you know having sex with the maids or a lot of there's a lot of rapey stuff there's a lot I mean it's really quite dirty but um and i don't know if i'm allowed to talk about any of these things on air. Oh, no yeah i think it's um absolutely well i just always laugh when i think back because it's sort of my the first porn that and we sat in a circle of kids after they found it um and this, we were out, out in the country and would read these passages in like a state of absolute fascination because we didn't know the difference yet between really sort of victorian porn or whatever and you know it's and peeping through, you know, peepholes that are built into houses to watch, you know, the maids washing themselves, or you know, it's all of that kind of stuff. Really horrifying when you think about it. The tone is almost like the sort of the you know Jack the Ripper. The Jack the Ripper, yeah. The, that's almost the tone. That's mm-hmm. how dark it feels. But I always remembered this one line because I had to go look it up, which was he's having sex with one of the some girl. I don't even know. And he said, and then I came into her libation. And I was like, oh. And like, that was my earliest, like, sex line. Like, came into her libation. And I just think, <laughs> that like must a... have shaped me in some wow. strange way. <laughs> That's magnificent. Because I always thought a libation was, like, something to drink. Well. But. <laughs> <laughs> so I do, excuse Maybe me. Maybe Pass me that lemonade. <laughs> I will never, ever, ever be able to get that out of my head now. <laughs> so that was that one, I think. Yeah. But it's so interesting, isn't it? That and I think, in a way, this is you know part of the problem that we have. That not that I'm not you know saying that you know everything should be porn and porn should be for everyone. But there's maybe something in that. But also, it does 
because I, you know, and everyone I know had similar finding weird, creepy, hidden things as, you know, young girls and young women and it shaping you and you thinking this sort of very aggressive sort of problematic like male view is sort of is normal and also this world where sex is sort of entirely heteronormative and men are kind of taking it to where they can stealing it and this idea that women have to pretend that you know they don't want it it's sort of all against their will I don't think that's helping anyone and I think even in a liberal period we've got people who are you know making art and writing whose erotic imaginations were shaped by the Victorian gentleman or his counterparts or romance by Jane Austen I mean mm. you know when you know when she's refusing when when Elizabeth Bennet is refusing uh, her cousin's you know proposal mm. of marriage and he says in essence oh no that's what all women do and you, you always say no but what but you really want it basically is that in essence what he's saying you know in a Jane Austen novel that that's the assumption is that you know we we protest and we say no but really it means yes yeah and I that was that's something that sort of fascinates me the the way these things actually sort of continue to translate Mm. so we've talked about um rereading and about Pride and Prejudice um I wonder are there any books and there might not be because if you've not really loved something first time around why would you go again but is there anything that you have not enjoyed or struggled with and then returned to and really connected with huh oh that's really interesting um yes and I put a there's a there's a nod to it in the novel which is Middlemarch (laughs) Uh (laughs) ah the improving book I ways to be a better tried person and tried and tried you know and I would try and I just couldn't I don't know why I just didn't get the humor until I was so much older and it's so funny actually the 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 depth of irony and actually sort of criticism of the characters in the prose but I didn't get that at all when I was younger and I tried 10 times or something I mean, I find that hugely comforting. I've never tried. I've always wanted to and been so daunted by it. Yes, I know the feeling. <laughs> but it is very interesting how uh, it's just such witty social commentary. And that is so interesting now, you know, um, to me. Anyway, so yeah, that's one. But I think there are a lot of writers, you know, older writers who we talk about with such reverence and no one ever tells you they're funny. Right. Exactly. I mean, yeah, you wouldn't think of Middlemarch as funny, but in fact it is. It's very um, tongue-in-cheek, in fact, her, her point of view. Um, so, yeah, that was a big surprise to me when I finally figured that out. <laughs> but it took a while. Um, and I think the other, you know, book, uh, not that I didn't like, but uh, we were talking about Jane Austen, and um, for some reason the other sort of book I go back to over and over again is Lord of the Rings. And I read, because I read that when I was at a very formative moment. My father, parents were divorced and I was getting on a bus on a trip alone and I was leaving him behind and he ran into a bookshop and he said, read this. As I was quite nervous about going on this trip, I think I was probably 13. And I got on the bus and I got off the bus something like seven hours later and I was just I had never even looked up and so that that trilogy when we were talking earlier about stories that have endings <laughs> stories that are full-fledged as mm. it were, I think that is those those are the kind of books that I loved as a as a child really because that's so immersive isn't it and that experience you described of being on that bus and I can absolutely 
understand you wanting to really be in another world that does not resemble the existing one. And if any book is going to do that job, it's Lord of the Rings. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And just the imagination, the, that, that sort of the depth of the imaginary world, you know, I love the, uh, it just spoke to me. But I think I also started out early reading um, a lot of dark fairy tales when I was young. I don't know if you have here all those colored fairy tale books. They were, they're an amazing set of books that are all of these old, old fairy tales. And they're very dark. And I sort of read that as a child. So these like Brothers Grimm style stories or something else? Because I can't think of a sort of, I can't quite visualize what they are, but I don't know if we had an equivalent. Um, I'm so, I'm so surprised you didn't because, um, or maybe you did, but <laughs> before your time, as it were, because there were paperbacks and they were illustrated with the original illustrations. So they must have been, they certainly weren't American, and each one was a different color. So you, somebody loved the red book and someone loved the olive one and there was the brown. Um, and um, the sort of like east of the sun and west of the moon, a lot of very sort of... Um, Germanic or Norse-feeling tales, um, you know, the prodigal son type of stories, um, a lot of kind of Beauty and the Beast type of stories as well, that kind of thing. So what was your favourite? What colour was it? Brown, weirdly. <laughs> <laughs> and what were those stories? Can you remember what they were called or what happened? The different stories? There yeah. so many that it was, they're just... Every fairy, fairy tale that you might have heard, from the sort of Cinderella to whatever, but they were the sort of original versions, ah, not the kind, of, the not the processed food version, so to speak. Because like Hansel and Gretel, and I love the idea of the gingerbread cottage, but my understanding of that story is so basic, and I can't quite I get it mixed up. I think with the Billy Goat's Gruff, which I loved that as well and like the layers of deception but there must be so many things you know just like their walk through the woods and all of those you know children being sent out into the woods well this is a very simplistic theory and I've not really thought it through but I mean something I love and it's so sad and so brilliant in uh, the paper palace um and it made me think I don't know if it's non-fiction it's a bit by Ada Calhoun former guest of the podcast um pal of mine called um why we don't sleep or why we can't sleep and it's about sort of gen x women but about that parenting in the 70s and that sort of the ice housey, like, off you go, kids. We've got divorces to get through. You know, we'll see you at dinner. Here are the keys. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, there are so many gothic tales about children being sent away into the woods and getting lost in the woods and neglectful parents and whether all these, like, 70s parents were like, yeah, sure, that's our textbook. Have <laughs> that, kids. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's funny. I've been, <clears throat> excuse me, working on uh, the book was sold to HBO as a miniseries. I don't know, and um, and because I have to come up with a lot of new, uh, tons of new material and tons of new dialogue. There's a just funny that this came up. I hadn't thought about it, but there's a whole com- very angry conversation between adult Elle and her father, where she he he says something about a grim fairy tale and she says it's you know, Grimm's and goes on about a, a whole thing about the darkness of the divorce and his wife and and it's quite a funny scene but it's absolutely that it's Hansel she talks about Hansel and Gretel and um, those stories were in these books but they were much darker 
Um, and I think in terms of the Paper Palace and the, that generation, I, mean, my, I came from a family of divorce, and that's something that I really wanted to examine in the book, mm. that, that generation of, of parents who were suddenly free. Um, and I think the children, became, I think it really affected how we grew up and how we viewed sexuality, possibly pushing us to a more conservative place. You know, mm. when people are naked, your parents and other your friends' parents are naked all the time around you. You know, on Kid Cod, all the parents were naked all the time. You know, they on um, the summers, they, they, it was considered sort of slightly rude to wear a bathing suit on the beach, like on the public beach where we were. And they didn't want us to wear, my stepfather was a painter, um, and he well, he set, he set up a huge studio outside, and and he would not, we weren't allowed to wear bathing suits when we were there because it would ruin the the view, basically, you know, that kind of thing. And I think it, there was a, there's a freedom for the parents and a freedom for the children in the sense that we were running free yeah. in the woods, and that was amazing. And at age eight years old, mm. we were not swimming in the ocean unsupervised, right? Like, forget helicopter parenting, like you say. No parenting. But also, uh, and, you know, the ice storm stuff. You know, but then a, there's also a kind of dark edge to that, yeah. um, in my memory anyway. Not just the horrible stepmothers or divorce or all of the things that, that entails, but that that generation of parents, yeah. When I remember, you know, when I was quite a little kid, I've got um, lots of sisters, I've got five younger sisters, so I sort of felt, I think... Wow old I felt very aware of you know even when I was sort of young I didn't feel like a kid because there were so many kids and I remember having this really keen sense of like you know privacy and wanting to lock doors and wanting to be clothed and wanting to be and I think that when you take that away from a child it's weird isn't it because you're like no this is what's natural you're like well not not necessarily that impulse to protect yourself and your softest places and your vulnerability maybe that's what's natural but yeah it makes so much sense that that's the generation whose children, you know, they wanted to, to be supervised and, and to keep them safe. And, you know, that that's a very logical and sensible reaction to growing up. Yeah. And I think also way. Sort of like, oh, I, I want to stay married kind of idea, you know, that and then I think it's sort of swings and roundabouts because then there's sort of more of a open divorcee era, you know, time period. And now my nieces and they're all having these huge weddings, you know, with big bachelorettes and mm-hmm. the, there's, you know, the whatever reveals all these incredible pomp and circumstance yeah. around that feels very 1950s mm, actually. Yeah. Around um, weddings and it's like a big, big performance. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We'll be back with Miranda soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen The Incomplete Family Examiner by The Editors. This is extremely funny, astonishingly silly, and it brings me even more joy than a 1993 Beano annual. I promise so much laughter, and I think this is the perfect Christmas present for anyone who is a bit tricky and taciturn. It gets to the places other books can't reach. If they don't love it, they're not worthy of proper presents, and you should just get them a voucher next year. The Incomplete Framley Examiner is published by Unbound and it's available from all book retailers. Now, back to Miranda. Are there any love stories or weddings in books that you enjoy? Because like, a good book wedding is just great fun. Um, <laughs> of course, weirdly, my mind immediately went to The Godfather. <laughs> uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Uh, which also hard to argue with that (laughs) or sex scenes um my brain goes then secondly to a one of my very favorite books at age five called the rabbit's wedding which is a children's little beautiful illustrated children's book i don't know if you ever had it about a little a black bunny and a white bunny who fall in love and get married among the daisies and that <laughs> I loved that book as a, as a little t- child it was like a little fairy tale I do love romantic books in general uh, you know I think quite sort of obviously um I mean it's funny because all the you know keep coming back to Jane, Jane Austen but I persuasion was one of my also all-time favorite novels um as a child because and even now um if, if, for the exact same thing that's sort of the arc of the romance that finally happens and want it to and it should and then you know they're going to get married and it's the incredible thing isn't it when you know it will happen you can trust that in a book you know the love story is going to be satisfying but also there's a bit of you that is that you're engaged enough and nerves enough. even if you've read it 14 times before you're still this is definitely going to be you're still you're rooting for them Oh, completely. You're and I, by the way, I do that with certain movies. I just have to re-queue up 
certain certain moments. I mean, you know, not just you know, not just Pride and Prejudice or Far from the Madding Crowd, the most recent one. You you, you just go back to that that kiss. It just embodies everything one dreamt about or dreams about. I think in a way, like what movies? Um, well, the, the I just the remake of Far from the Madding Crowd, and the both Pride and Prejudices. I would say, but also, okay, this is a a, a lo-fi, but the Twilight movies <laughs> and books. I really, um, I know, I know, but I really liked them, and I thought um, because. I had a theory, theory, but because they were written by a Mormon, the point of view of people who cannot kiss, mm. right, they, she was able to sustain, you know, non-sex, basically, throughout several volumes of books. I mean, of course, then they can. Yeah, the pet breaks. But it, I, I really I thought, enjoyed that one. I thought, oh, good. I thought that, you know, my theory was that women over, of a certain age more married or whatever, uh, or a bit older, loved it. And then young girls loved it. And I think it's because it captured um, that the moment before that kiss, that suspended moment of incredible romance, just kept it in the air like that. And I think for young girls, it's like what they haven't experienced and are dreaming about, say. And for women like me, let's just I'll talk for myself, <laughs> it was like, the moment I knew I would never have again. <laughs> so I wanted to go back and revisit it, you know, that sort of, the, the intake of breath yeah. before the kiss, right? I just The I waiting just and the hoping and the pacing. So when um, the first movie came out, I, my first ever job was at a teen magazine called Bliss, which I guess is like 17. Um, yeah, I think those, realising what those books and what those films meant to those you know, young people who were dreaming of romance and weren't ready for it yet, but it was all they hoped and wanted and waited for. Like, my favourite book of all time is The Pursuit of Love by Nancy Mitford. I don't know if you know. I do know, and I did also see the miniseries. Oh, the recent one. The recent with, one. Um, Dominic West is yes. in it. And, oh, who, uh, it's, what's her name, the one he had the thing with? Yes, yes. Oh. Linda getting off with Uncle Matthew. Not ideal. <laughs> I remember all of those bits where they're in the in Hans cupboard and Linda and Fanny, they just, they're in love with love. And Fanny has this crush on this farmer that she's never met and she's just seen him from like miles away on field. Me like, he will do all of my adolescent hopes and dreams and yet I've got so much yearning to pin on someone and I'm pinning on that guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, those, crush, those crushes were the best and the worst crushes right <laughs> and I think it's almost so much fun you don't need your crush to participate sometimes you can just be you know there enjoying it yeah and, and I love those girls too by the way yeah completely yeah, fantastic. Uh, so who were your um are there any um book crushes we haven't talked about any heroes and they don't have to wear breeches but that is a bonus <laughs> it's a huge bonus obviously um but oh what i was going to say was that i i go back to children's books a lot certain children's books i actually reread the same way probably from the same period a little earlier you know 
Um, I don't know if you guys ever read the the Wolves of Willoughby Chase. Yes. All that journey, all the journey again books. I just a necklace of raindrops. And it's so yes, and then and all that that was romance to me at that age. You know the sort of Simon and the mm. you know the, the little the two little girls. You know, obviously slightly in love with this boy who lives in the woods, and you know so on. Um, I mean, last the Mohicans. <laughs> Um, was well, not from that period, obviously, but I think that of course that character is um, fantastic. Is that another book you read when you were much old, old, much oh. older? I think actually. Um, <laughs> you know what? I read when I was quite young, The Three Musketeers, um, and that was another crush. So everything is, seems to have like doubloons or pantaloons, <laughs> <laughs> whatever they're called. <laughs> Um, yeah, that was a huge crush I mean, book for if me. someone had a swash to buckle. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder whether it kind of it frees your mind a bit to really fancy someone. There's that remove. If they're too of this world, you start thinking of all of the real things that might get in the way. And you can just fantasise in a much more open, sort of relaxed way when they are yeah. from the past. I've never read The Last of the Mohicans. And I don't know if I've ever seen the film, which is something I have okay, to... Okay, if you haven't seen the film... The, the, it's that it is the most romantic movie I can imagine, and there's a line. The main line from it has been reused by so many people, uh, and in fact, in reused in uh, you know in Twilight as well. You know when he, Daniel Day Lewis and he goes, oh, he has to leave her, you know, trapped with, you know, about to be killed, and uh, you know, I will come back for you, you know, and of course does but and it's the movie is so romantic highly recommend well i know what i'm doing this weekend <laughs> that's the opposite of i'll never let you go jack isn't it yeah. <laughs> you talked about the paper palace being adapted to the screen which i'm so excited about and i know that you know you have worked in in that world and brought so many incredible things to our screens are there any books you would love to make into either movies or series or anything that if I could give you an unlimited budget and you could cast anyone you liked you'd go out and adapt go out and adapt well the the <laughs> the book that I have this weird desire to go out and adapt which is a, again sort of is a children's book but I it, called The Witch of Blackbird Pond oh I um, don't know that oh it's wonderful um it's that same sort of agey thing as like Island of the Blue Dolphins, but anyway, it's it's um, it's set in uh, Puritan uh, Connecticut, and um, you know it's about a young girl who comes from who's been raised in Jamaica, uh, you know, English or and she her parents die, and so she has to traverse the sea and, and arrives in this horribly cold awful uh you know sort of place where they're killing witches you know <laughs> that whole time and um very sort of nathaniel hawthorne time and, <laughs> <laughs> um and um it's a really interesting story to me because it's also a romance by the way wonderful romance between her and one and a boy who lives there a man who lives there young man um but it's i haven't seen anything that i've loved 
set in that period of American history. Um, it's such a strange, spare, sort of angry time, mm. um, judgmental time period in this landscape where you're just settling and there are threats coming from the outside if you know if you've just come over and that sense of having to keep a controlled totally controlled society and then coming into it this colorful bird basically who doesn't understand and doesn't understand the strictures of that religion and so it's this the, the clash of those worlds but i was always really fascinated by the the early early american history of you know the cotton mather and the the, the yeah well the Puritan culture and how that came over which was very different from the Pilgrims right yeah. it's a whole other whole other movement but that sounds incredible and like raising this community to be fearful and that sense of kind of always being being threatened and pushing things out have you read do you know um, A Little Princess by Francis Hoxenbinet who wrote The Secret Garden hello <laughs> <laughs> so I had a feeling it might be I've but, read that probably. I can't even tell, think how many times, as well as Secret Garden, which I reread as an adult, and it had this one passage that I, I actually reread to a friend on the top of a, of a bu- London bus a year ago. I said, oh, "You can't believe how profound this is. It's, it's how I feel now as an adult in the Secret Garden." But a little princess, talk about the most romantic story. And oh. I love Little Lord Fauntleroy, so I'm clearly a sucker for. <laughs> You know, the, and all you know, we haven't even gotten to Jane Eyre or you know, Wuthering Heights or you know, etc. Yes, but it's, I think, a little princess more than any because I just, I loved, I really loved the utter, utter two faced meanness of Miss Minchin and the way. And I think there are lots of people I've talked to, like the Sarah, Sarah, um, she's just so obnoxiously pious and she takes it all so well unlike um mary who is sort of an out and out brat who learns not to be but um just the way the you know the glitter and glamour and the diamond mines and then this the the opposite the reversal of fortunes that she does so well and i thought that was just incredible and the greatest thing it's that line where she talks to becky about how wealth is nothing but an accident of birth and I'm like, that line made me a socialist when I was eight. Yeah, no, I love that book so much. And P.S., the, the book I've been describing, which is Blackbird Pond, is very, very similar. That's she exactly what I was... Money and wonderful life, with, yeah. you know, palette, you know, huge, fancy life. And then she is an or- she's orphaned and she becomes... And it's sort of Wolves of Willoughby Chase, too. It's yeah. these books, these orphaned rich kids who... And you know, wicked grown-ups coming wicked in. Wicked grown-ups, exactly. But I, did, I think when you were describing that book, I got goosebumps. Like, oh, that sounds like something I would really love. Yeah. I always wanted to make... Well, it's so funny. When I first got to Los Angeles and was working at HBO, um, I went out for lunch with an agent, and he said... He kind of asked me the same question about... Because I'd come from the book world. And I said, you know, the, what I've always wanted to make... And, you know, I'd quit my job in a, in a heartbeat is The Lord of the Rings. And he said, oh, that's so interesting. I have a director and he wants to make it. And he, we all went out for lunch and we talked about how we would do it and what we would do. And then he brought it back to the agency and they said, nobody would go to see that movie. No <laughs> one will go and see The Lord of the Rings. Are you kidding? It, was like, it would be like going to see The Hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, oh, God, oh, cut dude. to, I mean, but P, 
P.S. that he made those movies very beautifully, I think. Um, but it was really annoying. Oh, that must have been so bittersweet to see it. Yeah, definitely. Oh, God. I wonder if, if that person remembers saying those words. It wasn't even just the per- You know, they would sit down in a conference room and say, oh, we've had these meetings. And it came back, you know, unilateral. Nobody would ever go to that film. So, <laughs> so there's that. Oh, hindsight is a hell of a thing. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think probably a lot of films may be being made that I don't know about, but another one is The King Must Die. That's another that I was describing to you. That I would love to make as a, as a film because then everything I saw in it when I read mm. it when I was younger, all the imagination could be put up on its feet. And I know I think in a very visual way, or I write, I think, and think in a yeah. very visual way. Um, and that probably has to do with my push away from from uh, the books where I went back and thought, really? You know. But I feel like also if you made um, The King of Start, you'd have the opportunity, you could be an underwater archaeologist in a manner of speaking sort of do it on your terms how right. you imagined it would be you'd be <laughs> you know living that life rather than you know not just scraping away not at just scraping bits away. of pottery I mean I think in a weird way writing can is writing an archaeology archaeology in its uh, sort of dreamy or you know romantic form um, are quite similar mm. because you're I mean for me the experience was um, or the difference, let's put it that way, is that in, you know, the archaeologists are purposefully you know, digging for something. And when I'm writing, I feel like as, when I, as long as I stop looking for something, um, like I unearth it. So th- there's this kind of thing about kind of going under the surface, under the surface, and things just come from nowhere, which is um, the first line of the novel as it happens. <laughs> Oh, I love that. And I think about that all the time when I'm writing. The analogy I keep sort of working at is like, I just want to be under, I want to be alone on the seabed with this thing I'm trying to make. And I just want to see what's there. And I can't concentrate, I can't be in it if I'm above the surface and there's too much noise around me. Yeah. But then I think, you know, often when, you know, when reading or, you know, and you're sort of receptive, there are pearls and so many things where well it's like they're talking about Wolves of Willoughby Chase and um Little Princess and the Secret Garden and I can sort of feel those sticking and that they're prob I think something's going to turn up in a not obvious way. And it's not like I'm going to write a character, you know, called Mary who's bad tempered and right. in India and quite but, contrary. Yes. <laughs> but there's definitely something there sort of thematic if I leave it to brew for long enough. Yeah. I, by the way, I did think about two. Two. I was thinking about Outlander and Poldark Ooh. when you were talking about <laughs> novels that, that then you know that had male characters who one lusts after, and then that are turned into excellent, you know, strong choices. Put, and <laughs> put were you? Did you come to the books first? Yeah, with Outlander, you know, I mean, I read all these big, um, uh, the Far Pavilions. I don't know if you ever read, which is set in India and I must have been published in the 70s incredibly romantic it was also made into a into a mini series and 
you know, these yeah, these sort of thick romantic books I definitely read when I was, uh, you know, the Outlander series is one of those things, it's like Twilight, you just don't necessarily want to admit <laughs> that you love it. But, you know, that kind of yummy, it's delicious. Mm, and when you know there's lots, when you can really immerse yourself and feel like, I, you know, I've got so much book ahead of you, I've not got to ration this, I yes, can just exactly. immerse. <laughs> exactly. I really just, I could talk to you forever about books, which is why I'm mindful of, you know, that sadly I can't and you've got a very busy schedule and lots to do and I've got to be aware of the time. Are there any books that you haven't mentioned that you would like to talk about? Yeah, I think um, Anthony Doerr's All the Light We Cannot See was, is, was a book I both loved and that kind of changed the direction of, of the Paper Palace. Oh, interesting. For me, when I got to the end of that novel, um, and I realized what, in fact, the title meant as a, as a, as a metaphor and also not as a metaphor, um, I was stunned by the, the notion, the beauty, the way he brought it all together. I mean, of course, I loved the book, too. And it made me want to go back and really think about the Paper Palace and really stop and think about where it was going. And and it really led me, without I think without knowing it, mm. toward the ending that the book has, where it's really a story about Elle. It's really not... It's a story about a woman's life and her trajectory, I think. And it's not, you know... Yes, of course, there's two men and etc. But... Really, it's her journey mm. and um, and her journey to them that particular moment where it's the place that's inside her. It's the it you know the metaphor of all, of of all the little pieces of paper crushed together that yeah. can still stand strong. Um, and so that book, so all the light we cannot see, was definitely pretty instrumental while I was writing this. Um, as I would say, the other two books that really freed me up one was one is just Ali Smith but but particularly Autumn because I couldn't believe how free it was and how she went this way and that way and this way and that way and you know a kind of platonic love story between a, you know an ancient man in a coma and a young woman it was like whoa and I think she's a writer that um we talk about in very sort of serious literary terms, and she's very good, and she's very good, but she's really funny, and no one oh, ever says that. Funny and just free. There's a freedom to where she'll go that I went, it made me go, oh yeah, you can do that, Miranda, because this is my first book, you know, and you, I'm beginning, you question, question, you know. Um, it's feeling something dramatic must happen on page 112, and there's got to be this beat and this resolution and this. <laughs> Yeah, um, and then I think James Salter mm. is, is somebody who was very influential to me as a writer and his style of writing, um, and the importance of dialogue, uh, the importance of what's unsaid um, in dialogue, and also his descriptions of the natural world and how one gesture between two people tells you, oh, she hates her, a little teeny gesture nothing and you get the whole picture and I saw his he's somebody um that you know Light Years was a book I don't know if you've read it but it's a wonderful novel is he a sport in a pastime I don't yeah, think I've read which is, Light Years you know, which is porny quite 
But uh, oh god, I'm, you're talking about romance, and I'm just lowering the tone again. No, 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 no. no. I think uh, it was *Sport and Pastime* is a wonderful novel, but uh, *Light Years* is, and it's about it's about the period we were talking about, really. Well, more the sixty early sixties um, divorce and marriage and this kind of uh, it just creates a social world that is incredibly resonant. I really want to read that. I think yeah, that's right up my alley. Wonderful, wonderful writer. Yeah, it's not a um, a big novelly novel, but there's a James Salter book I love that I he wrote with his wife or partner, oh, Kay. Oh, which we have, which we're giving um, to friends as a wedding gift. And it's now out of print. So the only copy I was able to get hold of looks quite sad and sorry for itself, but it's called Life is Meals. Every single day of the year has an entry with it's mostly food, occasionally it's a person or a recipe, but so... Wow, how funny that you have this. <laughs> the book we Let's just... see what, what it is wow. today. Is it the 22nd today? Or oh, the time Life of recording? Well, by um, the way, that you'll, then you'll love Light Years because it, the whole first section is preparing a dinner and the way that the wife prepares this dinner and every gesture of hers and the way the husband perfect, prepares it and... Um, it's a yeah. It's like a dance. That does sound gorgeous. Twenty second of October, today it's California wine. How appropriate! <laughs> there is an immense variety, and the choice can be bewildering. <laughs> Which is uh, true of books, also. That is definitely true of books, also. Huge thanks to Miranda. The Paper Palace is published by Viking and out now. If you haven't read it yet, it is a book you'll want to drop everything for. You can follow us at YBooked on social media. Look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends and thank you so much to everyone who's left us a five-star review. It helps other people to discover us and their favourite new books. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Miranda at acast.com slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. We'll be back next week. For now, I leave you with this from Raymond Carver. Writers don't need tricks or gimmicks or even necessarily to be the smartest fellows on the block. At the risk of appearing foolish, a writer sometimes needs to be able to just stand and gape at this or that thing, a sunset or an old shoe, in absolute and simple amazement. See you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.